0: now turn to God's holy word in connection with baptism and the sacraments. First of all, we will read together a few words from Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 36 through 41. So Acts 2, beginning at verse 36. This is the Peter speaking to the people on the day of Pentecost in, in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit is poured out on, uh, on the church then, and he says the following to them, it's part of his uh, of his words. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, that is, to the church. Let's now turn to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 4. Romans, chapter 4. We read from the first 12 verses, and then we turn to chapter 6. So Romans 4, beginning at verse 1, Paul writes, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while he... while still uncircumcised, that he might be a father, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision, to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had, while still uncircumcised. For the So far from chapter 4, and then we turn to chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were baptized with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father... Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. I was asked whether I would preach on on the Lord's dealing with baptism this afternoon, so let's turn to that which we confess concerning baptism in Lord's Day 26 and 27. Actually, my own congregation, some uh, earlier this year, I did a, a series of sermons dealing with sacraments and, and baptism, and, and included also uh, Lord, Lord's Supper. Uh, this afternoon, I uh, took one of the, the sermons in that series dealing with the sign. What does it mean when we talk about the sacraments as a, as a sign? And so we'll look at baptism and Lord's Supper even uh, from that perspective. Let me just read, I'm, I'm not going to read everything in these two uh, Lord's Days, as uh, I'm not really going to be dealing with everything in this, in this Lord's Day uh, either, as I'm dealing with the aspect of the sign. But let us just take a, a look at Lord's Day 26. Question answer 69. How does holy baptism signify and seal to you that the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross benefits you in this way? Christ instituted this outward washing and with it gave the promise that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and spirit wash away the impurity of my soul. That is all My sins. Question answer 70. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means to receive forgiveness of sins from God. Through grace. Because of Christ's blood poured out for us. In his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with the spirit means to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. And sanctified to be members of Christ. So that more and more we become dead to sin. And lead a holy life. And blameless life. And then we turn to uh, question answer 74, the last one of Lord's Day 27. Should infants too be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism as sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the old covenant by circumcision, a place of which baptism was instituted in the new uh, covenant. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that the sacraments are very closely connected with God's covenant. When we think of a covenant, especially a covenant that God makes with us as his people, we need to understand that a covenant is always dealing with a relationship. God is entering in, when God makes a covenant with us, God is entering into a, a relationship with us as his, his people. And when he enters into a relationship with us, he doesn't simply say, well, I'm going to be around you. And, uh, you know, as some kind of a loose association. No, God actually comes with promises. And in that promise of the covenant, he says to us, he says, I will be the Lord your God. And and you will from now on, you will be my people. And the, the Lord makes it possible for us to have this new relationship with him. And he does that by sending his own son, Jesus Christ, as our Savior. Jesus came and he restored, and he made it possible by restoring that relationship with God, by removing the sin that stood between us and the Father in heaven. And so when we think of the covenant that God makes with us as his people, the Lord promises that he will indeed forgive us of our sins, and he's going to give to us the life everlasting But the interesting thing is that the Lord God throughout the history of his people didn't only give those promises. He doesn't simply say, this is what I promise I will do for you. But God also gave signs of those promises. And with those signs, God is always reminding us of what he has indeed promised us. But not only do those signs remind us of what is being promised. God also says, and these signs are also a guarantee to you that I will do the very thing that I have promised to you. Now, there's another aspect that we need to, to think about. We don't always think about it, I think, uh, enough. And that is through the sacraments. The Lord God makes the gospel message personal. And we say God makes the gospel message personal, we mean this. These signs, whether it be baptism, whether it be Lord's Supper, those signs are given to you personally. Right in the sacraments, the Lord God comes to you. And he personally, he says to you, this is my sign that I give to you. And so when we were baptized, as we saw that this afternoon, God simply says also to Isla and he says to Shanna, he says, this is the promises I give to you, specifically to to them by, by their very name. And it's the same thing on Lord's Supper, Lord willing, next week, which you will also celebrate, when the Lord gives you the bread and wine. He gives that bread and wine to you as his covenant people, that you may eat it, that you may drink it, so that he may remind you of what he has promised that he would give to you. And so the sacraments then make the gospel indeed very personal. And so we need to always keep in mind that God gives his gospel promise to the person who is being baptized. He gives his promises to to those who are eating and drinking the bread and the wine at the Lord's Supper. The sacraments and our signs to you from God, what God promises He will give to you in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now there's another question that this raises for us, and that is, what did God deem it necessary that He should give each one of us these signs in which He personally speaks to us? And the answer the Scriptures gives us is, it is for our spiritual well-being. God gives us these because he wants to constantly remind us, this is what I promise I will do for you. God constantly wants to encourage us. He wants to strengthen us in our faith so that we may need persevere to the very end of our life in that faith, trusting God to be our God. And so this afternoon, we will take some time to reflect on God's purpose for giving to us these signs. And then we will also need to reflect on how we need to respond uh, to those signs that we have now all received from the Lord uh, our God. And so this afternoon we will confess God's word under this theme. The theme is the signs of the covenant are necessary for our spiritual well-being. So the theme, the signs of the covenant are necessary for our spiritual well-being. Under that theme we look at three things. First of all, signs strengthen our faith. Secondly, signs reveal what God does in us. And thirdly, we look at the signified thing must be appropriated, that is, we must be made our own by the faith. And so when we talk about sacraments. In the New Testament, we were thinking about baptism and you think about the Lord's Supper. Of course, in the Scripture, in the Old Testament, we don't necessarily call circumcision and Passover sacraments, but they are in the same category. And we confess that these things are signs of the covenant. And so remember we read from Romans chapter 4 and chapter 6 where where Paul speaks about circumcision as a a sign of the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. So there he speaks about circumcision. And nobody says about circumcision. He says this is a sign uh, that God gave to Abraham And when God gave that sign to Abraham, then he said to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 11, that this is the sign of the covenant between me and you, Abraham. So there we have a clear sign or a clear instance where God indeed speaks about this sign between him and his people. Perhaps you go a little further back and you may remember that God also speaks about the rainbow. Right? Children, you know all about the rainbow, right? In the days of Noah, that rainbow was a sign that God makes a covenant in which God makes a covenant with with Noah. And so, if circumcision is a sign of God's covenant with Abraham, we can now also say that baptism is a sign of the covenant today in the New Testament in which we are living. Now the reason that there's even a question often in the minds of some people of whether indeed this the baptism is a sign of the covenant is that there are also those today, also Christians today, who question whether indeed baptism is a sign of the covenant because they would say, well, you know what, the New Testament never speaks about baptism or Lord's Supper as signs of the covenant directly. And yet when you go to the New Testament and you think of the Lord Jesus celebrating the Lord's Supper together with his, uh, his disciples. Remember at, that last, at that, the Passover meal at the end and he also took the cup and he commanded his disciples to drink from it. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant. Clearly he connects also the, the wine uh, to the covenant as a sign. Or when you think about baptism... Baptism, you can say it is a sign of God's covenant promise, which God simply says, this is a sign that I will wash away your sins and I will do it with the blood of the Lord Jesus. The point that we want to look at today is, so why does God give us these signs? What's his purpose in giving us baptism? Well, to understand that, first of all, we need to take a look at the use of signs in, in the Bible in a more general kind of way. You Notice that signs are mentioned throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, also in the New Testament. And John, the Apostle John in his gospel, clearly tells us why God gave signs to us as his people. Right near the beginning of the gospel, you may remember the story of the children in chapter 2. Right? Where the Lord Jesus was at a a marriage feast in Cana. And his mother asked him to change the water into wine. And and the Lord Jesus does that. And then John makes this comment in chapter 2 verse 11. That this is the first of the signs. The first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. That's the first time he uses signs. Later on, near the end of the gospel, in chapter 20, verse 31, there John writes this. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. And these are written that that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the very Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. So you notice John John speaks about the miracles that Jesus did as signs. Interesting that the other Gospels refer to them as wonders. And later we'll see that signs and wonders in the Old Testament actually are very closely related to one another. But John calls them signs. Why? For Jesus didn't only come to help the people who were in need when he did his miracles, right? We often think the miracles were done because people were in need and Jesus had compassion on them and so he thought, you know, it might be a nice deed, it might be a good thing that I might do this miracle and I might help this person. That's not why Jesus did miracles. The reason John says that he did the miracles is so that he may show the people that he is indeed the Messiah, that he is indeed the Savior that was sent by God. In other words, these miracles, these signs are important for our faith. They are the very means by the which the Lord our God assures us that he really is the Savior who has come from heaven in order that he might save us. Because imagine this, beloved. Jesus just came to us and as he came to Israel and, and he only said, you know, I am the Savior. Right? Leave a lot of doubts. How do we know? How can we prove that Jesus really is the Savior or not? How does the people of Israel, how would they know? How would his disciples be able to, to determine if Jesus really is the Savior? If he only said that. Because there are many others who said the same thing. But what does Jesus do? Jesus didn't only say I'm the Savior. Jesus says, and this is proof that I am indeed the Savior sent by God. Here are the signs for you. So you notice then that these signs, they are incredibly important for their faith and for our faith. We believe in Jesus as our Savior. Why? Because we see his power and we see his glory in the wonderful things that he has done. And so John closely connects these signs to our faith in Jesus Christ. Now We, need to, we can also go back into the Old Testament history of Israel. Moses, remember, reminded the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 8. He says, remember how the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt with a a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with great terror, and with signs and wonders. There you have signs and wonders together. So the basis, beloved, for which Israel put their faith in God Moses says, are because they recognize and they experience the mighty signs and the wonders that God had done for them in Israel and in Egypt when He had delivered them from the Egyptians. And so, what does God do? God gave Israel the Passover. And the Passover was to be celebrated every year again as a sign from God so that the people of Israel may remember how their God in his outstretched and mighty arm, how he delivered them out of Egypt. It reminds Israel how the Lord God in Egypt had passed over the Israelite house, households whenever the angel uh, saw the blood of the lambs smeared on the doorposts of the houses. Passed over those houses, but he killed the firstborn in all the houses of Egypt. The people could be sure of God's covenant promise to protect and to save them because they, they remember also that sign of what God had done. Constant reminder. Our God is a mighty God. He's a God that we can trust. He is a God who will continue to be our God forever. And so when the Lord Jesus came to this world. The Lord Jesus did many signs to show that he is indeed the Messiah and the Savior of his people. And then when, at the end of his work, he ascended up into, into heaven, the Lord Jesus doesn't leave us without his signs. No, he left us with two signs. He left us with baptism. He left us with the Lord's Supper. And so we need to ask, so, so what are they signs of? Well, these are signs of the incredible work that the Lord Jesus has, compl- has accomplished and completed here when he was on this earth. Right Baptism is this constant reminder. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He didn't only die. Jesus also rose up again in the great resurrection on the third day. And so you notice, beloved, that baptism is not a sign of anything that you and I have done. It's always a sign of what the Lord Jesus has done. It's constant reminder, the Lord Jesus came and He died for my sins. And because Jesus died for my sins, now I too may die to my sins. And as the Lord Jesus was raised up to new life, so I and Jesus Jesus also am being raised up to a new life. So baptism is a sign of Christ's mighty work for us as his people. And the same thing can be said for the Lord's Supper. The bread and the the wine that you will receive, Lord willing, next week. Those are also signs that you receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. In which he reminds you, I have given you my body. I have shed my blood for you on the cross. Beloved, the bread and wine are signs of the mighty things that the Lord Jesus has done for your salvation. That means as you partake in the supper, you don't need to doubt that Jesus can do what he promises he will do for you. Now, with his broken body, his shed blood that he gave long ago, he now will continue to nourish you to eternal life. That means that there is no reason to doubt that God will indeed do what he has shown us and what he has promised us also through these sacraments. Right? These signs, they are closely connected to God's covenant. Because in that covenant, the Lord comes and gives to us those wonderful promises. He says, I will be your God. And you, you'll you'll be my people. And beloved, how can you be sure of that? How can you be sure that he'll be your God? That you will be his people? It's because he's given to you his signs. Right? With these signs. The Lord reminds you, I promise that I will give you life. I promise I will give you salvation. You don't need to doubt what I have promised. Remember what I have done for you. I have done those mighty things for you on the cross. So why do you doubt me? And you also, we also need to keep in mind here that it is God who gives us these signs. Because God is the one who wants to show us what he has done and what he will do for us. Very important that we also realize that when we're baptized, it's not a, it is not a sign to God of our faith. Or when we take part in the Lord's Supper, it's not a sign that we're now giving something to God in the Lord's Supper. No, with these signs, the Lord God is giving something to us. These signs, he's, he's washing us with, with, his, the, with the water. And he gives to us the bread and the wine. Right? Water and bread and wine are given to us by the Lord God. We don't take them. And he says that these are my signs to show you that what I have done for you in Christ Jesus. And beloved, when we understand the sacraments in that way, then what a wonderful blessing we have. Right? Then we're being assured every time again we see Baptists. Every time we partake in the Lord's Supper, God's work of salvation is real. It's true. I may trust that and he gives that to me as his child. Now these signs are, are not just memorials about what God has done long ago. These are signs we said are very, very personal. God reminds us about what he is doing in us, in us today. As mighty as the work of the Lord Jesus was long ago, beloved, the Lord continues to do mighty and he continues to do marvelous things for you also today. God uses outward signs to make visible the spiritual realities in the life of you, his covenant people. The work of the Lord Jesus has, an in, has a spiritual impact upon your personal life right today. And we're going to look at two examples in order to illustrate that. The first is where Paul writes about circumcision, about, uh, about the circumcision of Abraham in Romans chapter 4 verse 11. And there he writes, Abraham received circumcision as a sign. A seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So the first thing we may ask is, so what is circumcision a sign of? You see, there are many, also today, who, especially Baptists, who who think Paul is saying that circumcision is a sign of Abraham's faith. As one author or commentator put it, he says, what Paul is saying is that Circumcision ratifies a faith. It ratifies Abraham's faith. That's not what Paul says. Paul says circumcision is a sign of the righteousness that comes from God. Right? In his circumcision, God says to Abraham, I will give you my righteousness. Or he says, I will make you righteous. See, that is a gift that God promises to Abraham. And so the gift of righteousness became his own possession. Because God promised that he would give it to him. But it becomes his own possession indeed through faith. So here we need to understand too that circumcision does not guarantee Abraham's faith. But it wasn't a guarantee that Abraham had faith. But it guarantees God's promise to Abraham that God says, I will make you righteous, Abraham. So circumcision then is God's sign of what God says I will do in you. God says to Abraham, here is my sign that I have indeed I've called you out of this world to be my very own possession, one whom I love with an electing love. And my promise to you Abraham is that out of all the people of the world I will make you my righteous child. It is a sign of what God is doing and will do for Abraham as his servant. So think of the situation. Can you imagine you're living in a world uh, that is f- completely uh, foreign and a world that's completely uh, turned against the Lord God. There is no one in the, in the world that you know of who is serving the Lord God. And uh, Abraham is all alone in that world. And God comes and he says to Abraham, Abraham, here is my sign to you that of all the people in the world, that you will be my child. Well, beloved, that sign did not guarantee Abraham his faith. Nor does it guarantee the faith of his children who, who will come after him. That's going to become abundantly clear as you look at the history of the people of Israel over many centuries. Time and again, God's covenant people, they turned away from the Lord God and they fell under the wrath of God because of their disobedience. You see, no sign can ratify, no sign can guarantee anyone their faith. God doesn't say to you, here is a sign that you have faith. No, he says, here is a sign of what I promise I will give to you by faith. When God gave Abraham the sign of circumcision, it was a seal of the righteousness God had promised to him, and that becomes his by faith. And it wasn't only given to Abraham. The promise of righteousness was also given to his children. And they too were to receive that promise by faith. That is, they were to put their trust in the very promise of God. The second example is from Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. wherein the people who hear the news about Jesus Christ and what they have done to the Lord Jesus on the cross, they repent. And then Peter commands them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He says, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he adds this in verse 39. He says, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. You see what Peter does? Peter connects baptism to the promise of the forgiveness of sins and the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Later, Paul will write to the Romans in chapter 6 verse 4 about baptism. We were therefore buried uh, with Christ through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too uh, may live a new life. So you see, baptism is a sign that we have died to our sins by being buried with Christ in his death. It's also a sign that we now have been raised with him in his resurrection to a new life. So baptism, Paul says, is connected to our being forgiven our sins and receiving the life everlasting through the power of the Holy Spirit. Exactly what Peter already said to the people on the day of Pentecost. And so baptism then is an outward sign of what God promises he will do in your life, beloved. That outward water is a sign of God of what he will do there in your heart. He says, I will wash away all your sins. I will completely forgive them for the sake of the shed blood of my Son. And I will not only do that, but I will also renew your heart so that you no longer walk in sin. But through the power of the Spirit, you will now instead, you will want to to worship and to serve me all the days of your life. That's what God promises He will do for you as His covenant people. So, beloved. Baptism, then, is not a guarantee of your faith. In fact, there is nothing that will guarantee our faith. Neither are sacraments signs that, that we give to God, that we, that we give to God that we, somehow we want to prove that we have faith. You know, the, those who, who, believe, who believe that, and we think of, of the Baptists, uh, they often practice re-baptism. I just had, a couple weeks ago, we had a, an older couple, from toronto came to visit us in our worship service because they had they had found us and she was being frustrated because everywhere she went she was finding baptist churches and they were saying you have to be re-baptized and she said well i've been baptized i don't need to be re-baptized again you see what happens with rebaptism is uh, that we're told that you have to make new commitments to the lord as if baptism is your commitment to god and so the result is if you're not sure that your first baptism was indeed a real and genuine baptism because you weren't sure whether you had real faith or not, then you need to be baptized again. But how does that strengthen, how does that strengthen our faith? If anything, it only undermines our faith because it causes us to doubt our faith and we wonder, is my baptism, is a real baptism or not? Because if it's not a real baptism, then I better get baptized again. I remember I went to a a high school where it was um, pretty more Arminian, but they also practiced, of course, adult baptism. And and that was the real thing that they constantly were struggling with. Is my baptism a real baptism or is it not? And so they would re-baptize in order that they might be assured that they're really baptized. It's absolute nonsense. It doesn't give any kind of assurance. But when we understand That these signs, baptism and Lord's Supper, when they come from God. Then we have this this wonderful comfort that that God gives me, his covenant promises. God simply says, I will forgive you your sins. And I will renew your life with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's just a fact. Hebrews 6 speaks about how God confirms his covenant promises with the force of an oath. Hebrews 6.13 He says that when when God made a covenant promise with Abraham, and he swore by himself that he would surely bless Abraham and that he would fulfill his promises. And then he also writes this in Hebrews 6. God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it by an oath, because by this oath in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, referring to New Testament believers, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us in Christ, may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. You see, circumcision functioned as, an, as God's oath to Abraham. And so, baptism now and Lord's Supper, they function as God's oath to us today. In which the author to the Hebrews says it is impossible for God to lie. That's why baptism is not God's oath that God says you have faith. But it's God's oath in which he promises that you never need to doubt that he will indeed give to you what he has said in Christ in Jesus God indeed, when when he promises to his covenant children, for the sake of Christ, I will forgive you all of my sins. I will renew your life. You can be absolutely sure that God will do exactly what he says. You never need to doubt those very promises of God in your life. Right on the day of Pentecost, the believers received the wonderful assurance, both for themselves and for their children after them. God, beloved, will indeed give us life in his son, Jesus Christ. God doesn't lie. And God is unable to go back on the promises that he has made to you. And while God's covenant promises are real, yet we also confess they must be appropriated by faith. You see, covenant promises are not a guarantee. God doesn't guarantee our salvation. But God guarantees his promise. And God's covenant promises are only received by those who believe. The very promise that God gives to them. Right When God came to, to Abraham, God did not uh, come to him because somehow that Abraham was righteous and was worthy of his promises. No, he came to Abraham with a covenant promise that he would give Abraham his righteousness. He says, Abraham, I see that you're not righteous, but here's my promise. I will make you righteous. And beloved, that promise to Abraham came before faith. God says to Abraham, this is my promise. I will make you righteous, and I will make your descendants after you righteous. And then afterwards, Abraham then responded in faith. And he believed the promise of God. And therefore you also read that God reckoned him to be righteous. Right? It was through faith that Abraham makes the promise of God his own. And the same is true for the generations who came after Abraham. But you also know that not everyone believed the promise in Israel. There's so many Israelites who fell under the wrath, under the judgment of God. So the writer to the Hebrews applies this also to the lives of us as New Testament believers. And he encourages us in chapter 10, verse 23. He says, hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Hold on, he says, hold on to the hope that you have in Christ. Hold on in faith. For God who promised to forgive sins and to renew your life is faithful. It's clear, beloved, that if you let go of God's promise, if you do not hold on and, and if you do not believe God and you, can, and, you go and, you on, and you go on in life and you live in unbelief, then you will, need, you will lose the wonderful promises that God has given to you in Christ Jesus. That's why a little later in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, 36, the author writes, he says, you need to persevere in your faith so that when you have done the will of God, You will receive what he has promised. You see, the way that we appropriate the promises of God, the way that we make them our own, is is not through our works, not through anything that we do. Beloved, it is through faith. It is by putting your trust in the promises of God. You know, in chapter 11, the well known chapter with all those men and women of faith in the Old Testament as witnesses there the word promise is used seven times in that in that chapter in connection with the faith of God's people in the old testament and what set the old testament believers apart was this they believed the promises of god that's what the whole chapter is about right the old testament believers they were saved not because they were so strong in themselves but because they patiently, they waited for God to come and to fulfill his covenant promises to them. Salvation does not come through our actions. The beloved, salvation comes through the saving work of God in Christ and Jesus. And So God comes and he reminds you and I in our baptism. And he reminds us again also in the Lord's Supper that he is the one who's earned for us new life in his glorious kingdom. That means that each day we may live in his promise. Each day we may turn back to the Lord God and say, Lord, you promised it, and and I trust that that you will indeed, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, you will forgive me of all of my sins. God, I promise, I, I trust also your promise that in Christ you will make me righteous with you again. Right through these signs, God says, you may believe that in Jesus Christ you are righteous. And that you will indeed, you will enter into the great kingdom, into the great inheritance of my kingdom. What a a wonderful assurance the Lord has given to each one of you, beloved. The Lord has given that assurance to each one of you in your baptism. And again, also in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Then hold on unswervingly to the hope that you profess. For he who promised... He is faithful. Amen.